From Pure Advantage, I'm Simon Miller. Welcome to our podcast. The destination for leading-edge discussion with some of the world's experts in green growth, regenerative development, business and climate change. Nature's called upon us to think differently and tell a new story for a better New Zealand and the world. It's great to have you with us. In this podcast, our host and author, Alina Siegfried, talks with Dame Anne Salmon from the University of Auckland, Dr. David Hall from Auckland University of Technology, and Ramona Radford from Scion. With New Zealand on a mission to plant a billion trees, the panellists discuss the intersection between agriculture and forestry, and how a forestry sector can serve multiple functions to regenerate our peoples, our land, air and waterways. Enjoy. So kia ora, welcome. My name is Alina Siegfried and I'm a freelance storyteller. Um, so welcome, it's wonderful to have you all here. Um, in tonight's webinar we'll be looking at how we re- nurture a regenerative approach and diversify our forestry sector in New Zealand uh, with three highly knowledgeable uh, panellists. So I'd like to welcome Dame Anne Salmond as an anthropologist, best known for her work on cross-cultural exchanges in Aotearoa in the Pacific. She was named the Kiwi Bank New Zealander of the Year in 2013, has the Royal Society of New Zealand Rutherford Medal and is a distinguished professor at the University of Auckland. A member of the Air New Zealand Sustainability Panel, she's very engaged with environmental issues, heading up the Te Awaroa Voice of the River Project and a major restoration project in Gisborne. Dr. David Hall is a senior researcher at the Policy Observatory at AUT and an associate investigator at Te Naha Matatini. He has a PhD in politics from the University of Oxford and works on climate change, uh, climate finance innovation, low emissions transition policy and land use and forestry policy. And Ramona Radford supports Māori interests in Ngāhere, standing forest protection and restoration, plantation forestry, Indigenous forestry and tree-based innovation as Māori partnership advisor at Sion, New Zealand Forest Research Institute. She's responsible for developing a space for te ao Māori to endure inside tomorrow's forests by co-leading and co-facilitating Sion's Māori forestry roadmap and partnerships with trusts and corporations, collectives and communities. Her work contributes to the future success of the Māori economy and Aotearoa's emerging bioeconomy the One Billion Trees Planting Program and a Low Carbon Future, which, of course, we would all love to see here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Welcome to you all again. I'm going to hand it over to our panellists now to briefly introduce um, themselves as well. Damien, would you like to begin? So I'm an anthropologist, and um, but I've become passionately interested in environmental issues in the last Well, for 20 years now, we've been running this regeneration project at Waikereru in Gisborne and and growing a lot of trees. And uh, the place has been, I guess, my teacher and guide. Yeah, the inspiration comes from the land. Wonderful. Thank you. Ramona. Uh, Kia ora koutou. Ko tainui te waka, ngaitai te iwi, no tōrere ahau. My name's Ramona Radford, obviously. I'm the Māori Partnership Advisor at Scion and have been working here for two and a half years. Uh, Prior to that, I came from the commercial sector um, 
in dairy and export, uh, working between Māori and offshore uh, markets. Thank you. And David, over to you. Kia ora koutou, um, David Hall, and my background is in political theory and public policy, but also geography. I grew up in um, North Canterbury on a small sheep farm um, just outside of Waikuku. I've always had interests in land use and um, and some of the environmental issues like erosion and so on when I was started off. In, in academia, I was doing geography and studying erosion, but then I decided I wanted to um, do, do more things to stop the erosion. And so that's what got me interested in um, tree planting and the role that that can play in erosion control. And I've been involved in initiatives ever since, but certainly in that intersection between um, land use policy and climate policy primarily. Thank you, David. Um, would love to start off this evening's discussion by asking you, Ramona, um, what a whole systems or, or a landscape approach to forestry looks like from a Māori perspective in Aotearoa. So, um, with a number of Māori groups across the country in my current role, the way that it is expressed in terms of how the ideal or the aspirational forestry ideal is expressed by Māori is a a New Zealand forestry sector that is designed using Indigenous or Tangata Whenua, Te Ao Māori uh, worldview. So that's balanced, circular, um, no waste, intergenerational. This is the ideal, of course. Uh, In some cases, matriarchal, interconnected, and where the forest is seen as a spirit in nature, not as a resource, possibly even kin, but a different creation from man or, or um, people. The sector would be non-linear. Um, it would possibly not reside in ownership, but more in guardianship and look a lot like new forests. So forests that deliver a range of benefits, such as biodiversity, the ability for forests to regenerate and to um, conserve water um, and to clean air and to uh, revitalise, I guess, the soil and and the, the soil, the life in the soil. That is generally the dream, the aspiration of Māori around the country as as we visit and we talk with and we work alongside Māori. Yeah, certainly a little little bit different from the predominant way that we're looking at forestry at the moment in this country. Um, Damien, I wonder if you can briefly outline New Zealand's um, forestry history from from an anthropological perspective. Well, actually, probably um, my, my, my thoughts about this spring out of Te Ao Māori as well and the Pacific, because that's where I've worked a lot. And the history before people, you know, according to the scientists, about 80 million years, this was a land of forests and birds. And then um, in the last five minutes, we rocked up. And so uh, human beings turned up, the first Polynesian explorers, and, and, and we know that they came ashore and started settling the coastlines in particular and cleared quite a lot of forest. You know, a lot of coastal forest was cleared during the pre-European era, but at the same time, large areas of forest were left as food baskets and also for uh, wood timber for building waka and housing and so on. 
And then, you know, as we all know, 1769, um, 1814, uh, Europeans started arriving and a different kind of model of forestry emerged. And to start off with, you know, huge enthusiasm, beautiful forests uh, with marvelous timbers. And we set about cutting a lot of that down to build our building stock, our construction of all sorts of things, and then um, burned a lot of it, and especially the hill country uh, for pastoral farming. And then in the 20s, 1920s, so this history is really new when the forestry service, the forest service was set up, started planting lots of exotic forests uh, that had been happening before, but it got you know, on a large scale at that point. And these are monocultures, clear felled, uh, relatively short rotation, 25 to 30 years, planted in grids on the landscape. And then when you clear fell, the impact on highly erodible soils like those in Tairawhiti, where I'm from. So we've been seeing this. And for me, it's very personal because I know, spent a lot of time in places like Uawa, Tulaga Bay, um, and seen the devastation there. And these are friends of mine. So uh, just seeing the impacts of this kind of industrial model of forestry um, and how new it is but knowing at the same time that we have changed course, you know, in our short human history in these islands, last place on the planet to be found and settled by people of any size. So we could do it again. So that's why I'm very excited about regenerative forestry. Thank you. Um, I understand you've spent a little bit of time in, in Germany and, um, and looking at some of their forest systems over there. Um, would you like to share any thoughts about what sort of a, a mixed forestry approach um, might look like in New Zealand, uh, the likes of, of what you've seen in, in Germany? Well, because I got very interested in environmental issues, um, I've spent some time, I got a Humboldt Fellowship and I was really lucky. I was at the Carson, uh, Rachel Carson Center in Munich last year. I got very keen um, on looking at the rivers restoration projects there, but also forestry at Munich. And I met the forester. He's a professor at the same time. And what he was showing me and, and uh, what we were learning about and going into these forests were forests that are mixed age, they're mixed species, they're local species, so they're closely adapted to the local environment. Almost no spraying. Um, they are harvested in small coops so that you don't get, um, you're not opening up the canopy in any, any um, so there's no clear felling going on. And very, you know, high value, high quality timbers. And forestry, and um, the foresters there are trained in ecology. So then they're thinking about the, the whole system. And I kind of... Um, and I was looking at Alexander von Humboldt, who was the great German natural scientist, around about the time this country was first, uh, the first Europeans came ashore. And he was talking about the web of life. So there's a European tradition, which is kind of like whakapapa. It's the web of life. It's a total living system. People, plants, animals, the rivers, the whole living landscape, and the, the challenges to make it all thrive and prosper. And for me, that's what regenerative forestry is about a regenerative living landscape. So that's what I saw and I got very excited by it. I love that concept of the, of the web of life. So at the moment, we, um, we seem to have some incentives in New Zealand to be planting quite a lot of ex exotic species, um, a, a lot of um, pine plantation forestries. I wonder, David, if you could speak briefly to uh, the mechanisms by which um, it's, it's reasonably hard to be planting other forms of, of trees right now. Sure. I mean, just to riff off what Anne was talking about a little bit first, I mean, you know, there's a new movement um, around the idea of a landscape approach, which is kind of an umbrella term which captures some of what 
and was talking about and also Ramona there's um you know Maori ideas of kiuta kitai like from the river to the sea you know where you take this holistic approach there there, there is a movement towards reintegrating this this kind of approach a, a landscape approach and thinking about the complexity of the landscape and the diversity of land uses that can track across the landscape and in some way complement and synergize with one another and i guess that's where i see you know regenerative forestry playing a complementary role to pastoral land uses where the two are woven together as our land uses that um you know balance one another out a bit and in all sorts of ways environmental and economic ways as well as far as diversifying the economy and the and the landscape and i i think the key thing is is that a lot of people really get this you, you know we we don't see purely monolithic um land uses we we do see certain instances of it certainly where i'm from in the canterbury plains it it gets quite um a standardized sort of pastoral land use and and you know i notice uh, you know what the remnants of the forest that used to be there disappears as the irrigators come in so there are parts of the country that are going like that but um you know the question is how do we how do we support people's um aspirations for more diverse land uses um how do we build their capabilities to make those uh land use choices um around say planting trees for restoration purposes or planting trees for horticulture to diversify their farm and and so on and so forth but yeah so so one of the conversations that is emerging is a, is a biodiversity credit or a biodiversity payment i mean that's particularly to incentivize um native trees um for for the specific role that they play in enhancing biodiversity and and certainly that's something that a lot of landowners are looking for but they just lack the finances they lack perhaps the technical expertise and so on and so what are the sorts of mechanisms that we can put in place there to support that because you know one of the problems that the ETS does support this to an extent um, the emissions trading scheme because it does monetize carbon and it does enable landowners to generate cash flow by growing trees the, the problem and and this is what we're seeing playing out at the moment and in, in public debates over forestry is that the emissions trading scheme is designed merely to value and to monetize carbon and especially um carbon over carbon sequestration so the faster you can sequester that carbon the more uh carbon credits you can get and the more you can earn from selling them on the on the market and so this just incentivizes um you know whichever trees are the fastest growing and whichever are the cheapest to establish which generally means pinus radiata but the emissions trading scheme is not necessarily pricing you know the lost opportunity for biodiversity and it's not necessarily pricing the um the the climate risks um you know the 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 higher risk of fire the higher risk of of disease um as as the climate changes and so it's not necessarily while it might be generating the optimal outcome from a you know short term carbon sequestration perspective it's not necessarily driving the best outcome from a climate adaptation perspective and that also means it's not necessarily the optimal outcome from a long term carbon storage perspective either because if we're losing large chunks of the forest to fire or disease then um we're losing that carbon back into the atmosphere so the first principle to ensure yourself against this is is biodiversity 
native biodiversity, but also biodiversity that includes other kinds of exotic trees that um, that play other sorts of roles. You, you can incentivize this in multiple different ways, but certainly the yeah biodiversity payments is is one way, and through a variety of mechanisms. You know, the New South Wales has a biobanking scheme, for instance. It's another kind of offsetting scheme where people developers pay for those biodiversity offsets. There's also um, results-based payment mechanisms, um, such as the Burren program in um, in Ireland, where where farmers are ranked on the, the biodiversity in their farms and um, paid according to that. And then there's emerging mechanisms around agroforestry as well. For instance, where, um, you know, venture capital companies, you know, provide capital for establishing trees on farms and then, um, you know, have access to some of the returns from that. So there is a multitude of different ways to go about that. And um, that, that's really where we need to get to is to work out where we want to go and how we're going to get there using these different mechanisms which are available. Got it. Yeah, it sounds like we need a, a complementary suite of, of different market mechanisms there. Um, there's a question that's come through here um, around the carbon storage um, capacity for native trees as compared to uh, standard pine forests. And I understand that there is some pretty compelling um, new research that's come through science journal around the capacity of native forests. Can you speak a little bit to that, David? I'm not sure which science journal article that refers to, but, but, but I think it, it, it may be the one that, that just makes the point that if it's a permanent forest that is not being harvested, then over time it accumulates much more carbon over time because you're not pulling the wood out. Whereas if you have a rotation cycle for um, commercial forestry, you know, you're really only sequestering that sort of average over time, um, so which, which is a much lower proportion. And also if you're selectively harvesting from a forest, you're taking that carbon out of there. So there was a, a journal article that was making that case and, um, and raising awareness and, and, and caution around governments thinking that they can solve the problem by, by just upscaling the amount of commercial forestry they have available because, you know, that forestry is coming back down and that's associated with secondary emissions as well. And so it doesn't necessarily look as good from the long-term perspective as it does from a shorter-term perspective when you're just focusing on that first, you know, 10, 20 years of, of um, tree growth. Sure. So I think it's it's about perhaps focusing on the, the carbon sequestration capacity of a forest versus just the biomass of the of the trees of the um, that that are going to be taken out, Ramona. I'd love to hear from you. What what is Zion's approach to helping the forestry sector be better prepared for uh, a quite an uncertain future? I guess we've we've been um, doing a lot of work to look at um, how forestry can evolve. Um, so you would all be aware that. Um, that the Forestry Research Institute has um, has had a history of, of uh, forestry science that has been exported across the world. So plantation forestry began in New Zealand. I'm not sure if everybody realises that, but it began in New Zealand and it was exported from here. Um, so that was the first bit of work that New Zealand did in the way of forestry and, and how, you know, and, and we contributed that to the world. 
The next thing that we did as a nation was we worked out how we could take these plantations and add value to them. So we added manufacturing and processing and methods by which these plantations could be um, increased in value. So, so we've been driving innovation and growth in the forestry sector for 70 years as a nation and also as a research institute. We're moving now into the third wave. So uh, our CEO spoke of three waves of forestry innovation. And the third wave uh, looks more like a, um, an endeavour of intelligently designed forestry. What we mean by that is we're looking at how can you design forests for particular purposes. So our catchphrase at the moment is right tree, right place, right purpose. And that is deliberate because we are the science and innovation and research that we're doing here is a type that looks at what can you do beyond plantation forestry and what can you do beyond plantation forestry to maintain the value of the land and of the sectors and of the industries and the businesses and uh, communities that live in and around these forests. And we think that it's moving more in the direction of a away from centralised economies of scale, so commodity based forestry into distributive scales of economy. So what do we mean by that? We mean um, local and regional cooperative uh, ventures working together to answer local market needs first off is how do we maintain and make sure that our own forestry needs are met here in this country And then secondly, how do we drive greater levels of innovation in these new forests? So we're talking about new forests and those forests probably would be integrated with the primary sector. So we're getting beyond bits of land chopped up like uh, blocks of chocolate having specific land uses and looking towards a more integrated primary sector so that you can have a group of landowners working together cooperatively to design land use and to design solutions for minimising impacts on land and waterways and communities. And if we follow that line of thought, We're looking at a, and remember, New Zealand's actually ahead of the game in forestry in terms of where we might go and the science that that we have here. If we were able to um, design forests for specific purposes, and Scion is more recently talking about uh, circular bioeconomy. So how do we move away from our reliance on fossil fuels and on plastic and on packaging that requires both fossil fuel and package and plastic. How do we move away from from waste? What do we do with 
all of the the debris that floods our waterways when we get an extreme weather event. What can we do with that waste? So that's been the business and the uh, the preoccupation of Scion for several years now, and we are quite excited about where this might go and are in the throes of co-designing a program of uh, research and innovation with government and with industry, with the wood processing and manufacturing industry. And, of course, central to that picture is the idea that Māori forestry, which is currently only 15% of the total national estate of forest, Māori forestry can be the innovation, the innovative and what would a blend of Indigenous worldview and forest science and sector manufacturing and processing look like. That, we think, is an exciting proposition for New Zealand and something that we could all get behind. It means that not everybody's, not one sector of of the primary sector is sidelined. It means that we can start working together to regenerate our land and look at sharing cost and perhaps sharing benefit where it makes sense. So that's generally where we're, where we're heading. So we're looking at, you know, what does it look like to draw our boundaries differently? And I think that's where we need to go as a nation, as, as, as a sector and as a, um, an export-reliant uh, nation. How do we move from the dominant regimes to niche type systems where we have higher value, Mm. where we don't have to have large-scale land use that perhaps creates greater impact on our landscapes and our communities. So, So yes, we're looking at a much more integrated approach um, there. And I think uh, the value add is something um, certainly that we've been very happy to see um, with the government's Fit for a Better World report for the primary sector and uh, wonderful to see regenerative farming being touted as a, as a potential solution to help towards that. Um, David, I wonder if you're able to speak a little bit to um, what uh, what it could look like to be combi- combining uh, agroforestry systems or, or silver pasture systems on a commercial scale with a, a whole systems approach um, between forestry and, uh, and, and agriculture and, uh, in New Zealand. I just keep on coming back to the word weaving. Like it, it feels to me like that's the right word that we're not, ta- you know, when you say commercial scale, it immediately conjures up this um, images of, of large singular land uses that, that are sprawling across the landscape. Whereas I think it's, it, the question is how do we do this subtle thing where we're weaving in different land uses? We have a little bit of trees over here to hold, hold some erosion prone land and you know we might have um have have an orchard down the down the bottom of the hill and you know we've got we've got pastoral land uses in between all of that it's riparian strips along the riverways it's it's how do we support that kind of um interwoven landscape which i've written about in the in the past for a, a policy paper with that name but um it joins a long list of of other organizations who have been doing this I think it, it, it must be 20 odd years ago that the um, Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment then Dr. Morgan Williams wrote a report, Weaving Resilience into Our Working Lands. 
it, it was talking about exactly this. How do we get native biodiversity and other sorts of land uses woven through our farmlands? And that's something that Tane's Tree Trust has been exploring as well. You mentioned them, especially you know, some of their work with Totara up in Northland and um, the way that that can, you know, the re- the natural regeneration of Totara on, on farms can, can be um, embraced and encouraged and, and turned into another revenue stream um, potentially through selective harvesting. And of course, the New Zealand Farm Forestry Association as well is another longstanding organization which um, has been exploring different options around forest on farms, whether it's small woodlots um, or, you know, this term agroforestry, which, you know, encompasses all sorts of different kinds of forestry which exists within agricultural land, including silvopasture, which is a concept which is, um, you know, quite complementary to regenerative agriculture, where you're really quite deliberately um, weaving together uh, grazing with trees and and potentially crops as well. I mean, I I can give you a a general sense. I mean, some of the the benefits of this is, you, you know, trees have effects on the on the microclimate you know they can um they can they can hold an absorption and and um the shading of the trees can you know reduce land temperatures and so on reduces um soil degradation and and the litter from trees you know complements carbon um, back into the soil so it's another way to derive that um, improved soil carbon which is you know a core concern for regenerative agriculture having trees around also can can control the spread of pests and disease because it diversifies an ecosystem so if there's a, a landscape with with a monoculture you know a disease may spread quite quickly through all the, all of the different species that are, that are the same whereas if there's um, a diversity of species you're sort of building in that resilience against um, pests and other problems um, and also managing uh, regulating water you know trees capture a lot of rainfall in in their um, in their branches and and they release it back into the a large proportion into the atmosphere a lot is also absorbed by roots so they can sort of regulate water flow and catchments and um, reduce the risk of of floods and so on um, and, you know, I thought actually last week's uh, webinar that you gave with um, Greg Hart, you know, he talked a lot about this, actually, um, his experience of trees at Mangarara Station. But, you know, there's nothing quite like hearing it from a farmer um, like like last week and and hearing their, their reflections on, on how the trees have improved their farming outcomes. Because at the end of the day, um, there is no universal principle for these you know there are these kind of general effects but they're always going to play out in different ways on different um landscapes so so there's obviously some sort of benefits there and that's in the in the literature but it's a matter of um trialing them out and and building the building the knowledge base which is what we're trying to do with um the AUT Living Laboratories project which I'm on with David Norton and Anna Buckley etc um, and just to build that knowledge of, of, you know, what are those wider environmental impacts when we start putting trees back into agricultural landscapes. Dame Anne, I'd love to ask you um, how, how a regenerative and integrated approach to forestry can help us navigate through this very unique uh, post-COVID economic recovery period. Um, we're certainly in very interesting times. Any thoughts on, um, on how that might happen? 
Well, as part of um, being on the New Zealand Sustainability Panel <clears throat> with Sir Jonathan Porritt, it's been very enlightening for him because he's just written a book called um, Hope in Hell that gives us basically a, a decade to rescue a habitable planet uh, based on all the science. So he's done this very brilliant and kind of very sobering summary of the science that says, look, we haven't got long. And it's not just COVID, it's, it's biodiversity, it's climate change, it's the whole... Uh, our relationship with the living world is is putting our own lives and those of our kids and our grandchildren at risk. And so for me, the whole hope of the regenerative movement, um, because it's it's not forestry and it's not just agriculture and it's, it's rivers as well, it's what we're doing with the ocean. It's about coming. And I noticed this, the thing that gave me so much hope in Germany was that they kind of realized probably about 20 years ago that their forests they had a lot of commercial conifer forests and they started getting these, you know, diseases, um, but also increasingly um, across Northern Europe, as we all know, there've been these huge fires in the conifer forest as well. And so they decided and they made a decision that they would go to this close to nature forestry model, which is mixed species, mixed age, locally adapted, very resilient, open to the public by law, all the forests. So the people, the plants, the animals, the, the rivers, so you're regenerating rivers, you're regenerating forests, you're bringing back habitat for birds, you're making communities, um, you're giving them wonderful places to live in, but also to make a living. Um, and that's what I like about it. It's, um, and as a mechanism, uh, one of the things that we've been talking about, David and I and a whole lot of others have been talking about this prospect of something like an Aotearoa credit, which basically incentivizes native afforestation and some of that could be permanent for carbon sequestration in the long run. Some of it could be um, this, you know, a close canopy harvesting on a very sustainable and carefully managed basis. Um, but it would reward native afforestation and help counterbalance the huge weight in the ETS towards pines. But it should be set up so that rewards farmers that have, you know, that are doing, for example, or planting an erodible slope, it might not be quite big enough to fit in with the ETS. Uh, but it's got all these benefits. It's not just carbon. And the point is that I want to make is that the crises we're confronting post-COVID, COVID's part of all of this. It's partly because of what we're doing in habitat destruction, that these viruses are crossing you know, the species barrier. I think this is a, a huge way forward. So we have to have smart systems. You know, the ETS is too crude and it's having a lot of perverse effects. And... We need food, but we need food and thriving landscapes and thriving communities. And the people are part of the ecosystem. So I think there's Aotearoa credit that actually gives a weight to the full range of benefits. Um, it's something our government should be looking at straight away, basically. We haven't got long, is my point. We haven't got time to play around um, because, you know, that we can lead the world in this, actually. We're small enough, we're intimate enough, smart enough to lead the world. You know, it just needs the will of the people to change and if you look at the way that forestry currently is conducted in New Zealand, a great deal of it is it's been designed by one dominant thought, which is, sorry if I offend anybody, but the, you know, white, <laughs> the white male thinking, in my opinion, and the opinion of many others, is what's doing us a great disservice as a, as a, as a world all of our designs, all of our innovations, the way that we live and the way we, we 
that we trade and uh, communicate is being designed by one group. And what that's doing is it's imbalancing. It's creating an imbalance both in the, our relationship with nature but also in our relationship with each other in, a, in the way that we um, uh, design our primary sectors. It's all being driven by um, certain values and those values seem to reside in, in one, one particular uh, demographic. What would it look like if we were to design with diversity? What would it look like if we had more women in forestry, if we had more rangatahi and more, more young people uh, bringing their thoughts and their ideals and, and their uh, visions? What would it look like if we had more, more, more nanny and kraua? And what would it look like if we had other indigenous peoples, you know, involved in the design of not only our forestry sector or, or our conservation, which is where everybody seems to lump Māori and kaitiakitanga. Māori have a whole lot more to offer to the world than just social science and kaitiakitanga, although that is a very strong uh, framework that we could leverage off and that we could learn from. I'm saying, and I'm not the only one, that... If we as a nation have a, a second knowledge system that belongs only to this nation, why can we not integrate that inside of our design systems, of our living systems, of our regenerative systems? It really grates me when I see research coming through from across the world. A whole bunch of stuff around regeneration comes from a all over the world, and we have right here in our own back door a system of regeneration, a system of management, a system of sustainability that has evolved with this land for more than 700 years, and in some cases more than a 1,000 years. Why don't we take hold of some of that knowledge and integrate it into our, you know, our new forests, our new systems, our new integrated sectors. What would that look like? I'd be, you know, as a Kiwi, I'd be extremely proud to represent and promote something like that to the world. Absolutely. And I think you've just um, neatly answered Steve Garten's question around the opportunity for New Zealand to be leading the world um, using Māori wisdom. Certainly appreciate that that reframe from dominating nature to actually working with what has evolved here over many hundreds of mm. um, of years. I want to come back to you, Damien, just quickly about a comment you made before regarding um, the communities in forestry. What do you foresee in you know say thirty years time? Um, if we continue down um, for rural communities, if we continue down this track of of planting. Um, large areas of productive land into into radiata pine. So forestry, you know, plantation forestry arrived in Te Rapiti, um 70s, 80s. Um, the people came around and talked to people on the marae about leasing their land and so forth and telling them about all the jobs that were going to come and the profits that would happen. And, of course, what ended up happening is that New Zealand companies, when the forests were privatised, were, were sold off, first of all, to... New Zealand companies like Carter Holt Harvey and others, and then they were sold off offshore. And this is, this is not an ideological point, it's a practical point about when you don't live on the land and you don't see what happens when 
you know, you clear fell on highly erodible soils and the hills just start to collapse and the sort of things, we've got a whole bunch of um, young scientists with their, their lecturers running all over the coast at the moment. We're running a rivers project and they're all in the Waiapu catchment, they're up the Waimata catchment because we've got some of the, the worst slips and the most highly sediment-laden rivers in the world, not just, not just in Aotearoa, but in the world. Uh, the amount of topsoil that we are exporting into the ocean and, and drowning and with, with um, slash as well, uh, and the impact that has on the communities, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking uh, because it's true that what happens, for example, if we went into carbon farming with pines and they were just planted en masse and then left there, there would be very, very few jobs and the communities do die. There's not enough work for the shearers or the fences or the cooks or the, uh, the various people that work, for example, on the farms. And then the schools go and the local store goes and then the community is dead. And it just gets too hard for the ones that are left. And so it's like a, a row of dominoes just falling. And I've seen it happen. And I know that the ETS has such strong uh, incentives at the moment to plant pine trees. And it has no limits on carbon farming, really, uh, through that mechanism. Given all the different crises we're confronting, I think it's ecologically actually stupid, is what I think, and kind of tragic for our rural landscapes potentially. But I, I have faith in New Zealanders. I really have a huge amount of faith in our ability to look, look at our landscapes and to know what's good for them. And then all we have to do is just basically persuade the people that represent us to do their job and give us a good future with our land, on our land, as part of our land. And I think um, Ramona makes really good points about the philosophies here. Uh, for me, it's, it's the philosophy of the balance sheet. But the trouble is it's the balance sheet of the company and all the stuff that I'm talking about, you know, the profits that are exported, the, the workers that get, get killed and injured in the forests, the collapsing hillsides, the drowned harbours, that's all an externality. This is kind of crazy economics. It's not the kind of economics we need in our small, beautiful country. You know, the living system, our communities as part of the land, we shouldn't set ourselves apart from it and say it's just there for us to exploit and make a buck because if we destroy it, we destroy ourselves. And I think the rural community are saying that loud and clear, and I think that we should all be listening. Yeah, absolutely. There have been a couple of uh, questions come through in the Q&A that are pointing out that so many of our forests are um, owned by overseas owners and that um, there isn't any purely commercial incentive to be, um, to be looking at these regenerative forms of forestry. David, I wonder if you could uh, briefly speak to, I guess, the, the, the politics of that and, um, and what, um, yeah, how, how do we deal with that kind of complexity and, and different uh, value systems and so on? The key, the key is really to start, I think, with a vision and a sense of what outcomes you want and work backwards from there. And I think this is one of the problems with the way that we've approached climate policy so far is through these market mechanisms, which to some extent dodge the question of what our vision and what our, what our outcomes are. They just... Um, they, they they simply pull in carbon into into the economy and kind of let it rip in a except for meeting the targets they're kind of indifferent to what other sorts of um, effects have been created i mean the 
the emissions trading scheme is is indifferent to the biodiversity of the trees. It's only really concerned by the carbon sequestration. Um, and so I think we just need to take that step back and think more strategically about it and think about where we want to get to and how things like the emissions trading scheme can serve that purpose rather than being a, um, an end in itself to some extent or, or merely an end to... Um, to meeting international obligations. I mean, because I think we're, we're, just, we're just missing a trick here where we could achieve those obligations by, you know, through subtle and, and more sort of sophisticated ways. And, um, and the, we're just not seeing that kind of strategic thinking coming through. I mean, there's often, when, when we're talking about carbon farming, for instance, there is a conversation around that the pine trees or some other exotic species could play a role as a um, nurse species for native trees over the long run, um, which scientifically is, there's, you know, there's, there's an open question there. There is native regeneration that occurs within um, Pinus radiata forests. And I know that Adam Forbes has worked a lot on this. If, if you cut down trees and let the light in to what extent that native forest can come through. But, but at the moment we're, you know, we're not even seeing that as part of the, the value proposition for the carbon farming um, that goes in. And, and then we're missing other sorts of ways of addressing the same problem. Like for instance, continuous cover forestry, which is something that, you know, I've advocated for in the past and which isn't a very common um, set of forestry systems in New Zealand, but where, you know, the integrity of the forest is maintained by an, allowing only um, selective harvesting of the forest. So in some ways you get that benefit of a permanent carbon sink like forest, um, but without that sense of it being locked away forever um, as, as we're thinking about with carbon farming at the moment, where after the forest growth plateaus in say 40, 50, 60 years, then um, there is no revenue being created anymore. And that's what people are worrying about. Whereas if it was a continuous cover forestry, it would be creating jobs. And especially mm -hmm. if that was a native forest, then it would also be satisfying other sorts of needs of the community. It would be, um, you know, a functioning yeah. forest that were that that has native biodiversity, but also has those economic opportunities that we could be pulling out really valuable logs, which which would be unique to the world. So it it it, it maps up again, and the, and the only thing that's stopping us really to create that sort of close to nature forestry, relying on native species, is is just patience. You know, they do take longer to grow to a harvestable age than, um, than, than some of the exotics, but it's just a matter of patience and investing and committing to that long-term um, mm -hmm. long vision. Sure, absolutely. We were almost out of time here, so I'm just going to invite each panellist um, to give very brief, maybe 30-second answers. You know, if we were to do something tomorrow, to move our forestry system towards being more regenerative, what, where would you start? Um, let's start with you, Ramona. Where would we start? We would start by applying moral courage as a nation to our decisions. We would imagine a different future, a future where we have uh, created a home where our children and our mukapuna can reside and, and feel 
uh, safe and connected, I guess, with nature and with the rest of the world. Of course, New Zealand's not only responsible for the effects of climate change, but I believe that as we have been uh, leaders in forestry before, we can be leaders in forestry again. And so that's my challenge to the listeners. Kilda. Beautiful answer. Thank you. Moral courage. I think we need more of that. Uh, David, 30 seconds from you. Well, I've talked about diversification already, but um, it would be that plus care, I think. We need to... We need to care about the forests that we're planting and we need to care about them in the long term because I think the, the only forests that we're going to look after and invest in and make sure that they flourish in a, in a changing climate and a changing world are going to be the forests that people care about and the forests that they like to, they like to live with, they like to live in and live among and, and to visit and to cherish. I think if the communities uh, feel indifferent or hostile towards the forest that end up in their, in their rohi, in their um, region, then, um, then those forests are just going to get left to waste. And, I, and that's a major issue for long-term resilience. Thank you, David. Damien, anything you would like to finish on? What would you do tomorrow? I think moral courage, absolutely. And... You know, diversification, yes. And I think practical action, that's really urgent as well because I think that without, um, without shifting some of the, the perverse incentives that we have at the moment, things will continue to play out the way they're playing out at the moment. And I don't see good outcomes for, for, for the landscapes, for the people, uh, for our economy either, or in the end for carbon. Um, so practical action, I, th- I love this idea of the Aotearoa credit, uh, the idea of being able to, if, if a farmer joins a project, and they all are joining our Waimata project, um, they're all jumped on board because they want to look after the river, they want to look after their, their land. If, if they do that and set some of the land aside, I think it should be capable of earning uh, something which is competitive with pines because there are so many rewards uh, for the waterways, for biodiversity, for our landscapes, for the soils and for carbon uh, with those plantings. So Aotearoa credit and one that's smartly designed uh, to incentivize the kind of interwoven landscapes that Ramona and David have been talking about. That sounds amazing. (laughs) How about that for the future? Thank you to our three panellists and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you so much for joining us again. Um, Ka kite. Have a wonderful evening. To learn more about Pure Advantage and the work we do, go to pureadvantage.org and follow us on Instagram. If you found this conversation valuable, please rate this podcast, share and subscribe. Thanks for being on the journey with us. Ka kite anau.